Progress in a rebuild isn't always linear, and that was pretty clear this week, as United faced setbacks in two different competitions. On this week's Devils in the Details, we discuss how worrying the loss against Aston Villa actually was, and how the difficult conclusion to the Europa League group affects United's ability to progress in the competition. Playing host this week is going to be fun because I have to juggle roll call with two people who have very similar names. But we'll start as we always do with Case. Case, how did you find those games? Obviously disappointing from a results perspective, but the sky is not falling. Uh, and I think even in defeat or uh, in the case of Sociedad, insufficient victory, <laughs> um, we saw positive things and negative things. So I'll say I'm disappointed, but I'm not dissuaded or uh, put off. I, th- I still think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think that's basically what we're going to be talking about today. Why we believe that and also what went wrong. And as I implied before, we have a special guest joining us today as well. Um, we're, we're welcoming our good buddy Casey Evans as our guest for the week. Casey's a really good writer. He appears on all kinds of different outlets, Um including the Manchester Evening News, as well as with our friends at Scouted Football and the Busby Babe. Currently, though, I really encourage you to look at his newsletter, Played on Paper, um, which mostly chronicles, um, or or recently mostly chronicles, uh, the world's most prominent international sides. Leading into the World Cup, I honestly think it's some of the most in-depth stuff you'll read about some of the biggest contenders for the competition. For now, though, Casey joins us to talk about United. Casey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. That was a, a very nice sell, very nice sales pitch. Afterwards, just send me the clip of that and I'll, uh, I'll I'll load it up on my newsletter and be like, here is well-known Twitter celebrity Aaron Muniz talking about played on paper. But yeah, uh, I'm good. Uh, I would have been better, obviously, if the match yesterday or a couple of days ago, because we want to keep the illusion that this podcast is in, 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 in the time space. Uh, I think we'll get into a lot of what went wrong over the last couple of days in this So. I'm good personally, football-wise, 50-50. We're happy to have you, Casey, and uh, I I have to admit your newsletter has one of my favorite names of all of them on Twitter because it truthfully says that football is played on spreadsheets, not on the pitch. All right, (laughs) even though it was the more recent of the two matches, I wanted to start with Aston Villa here because I think it's an interesting case study for how and when things tend to go wrong with this United team. I'll also preface this by saying the three of us watched the better part of both of these games before recording here. And there's a lot to discuss here, but I think in the first half hour, a lot of it came down to United's failures executing some of the pressing structures we spoke about with John. Case, why don't we start with that shape where the ball is with the opposition goalkeeper? Um, A little bit about that hybrid press that we've spoken about. Um, Maybe if you could explain how that sequence works and maybe where it went wrong, and we'll discuss from there. Yeah, so what we see or just generally what we've seen um, in these past few matches against back fours, uh, where the the opposition is using a back four, the press takes on a slightly different shape than what we saw uh, when we spoke with John or when we spoke after the Tottenham match. And specifically that's because an opposition, a different opposition shape causes you to take on a different pressing shape. So when we're pressing the back four, uh, when the ball is at the goalkeeper, and a lot of you I'm sure have noticed this, whoever the central striker is, in this case it was Cristiano, 
Cristiano will pick up one of the center backs. In the center forward will pick up one of the center backs. In this case, it was Cristiano. One of the wingers will pick up uh, which the near side fullback. So if Cristiano picks up the opposing left center back, our right winger will pick up their left back. And then our, our spare winger, in this case, will sort of hedge between the opposing right back and the opposing right center back. So he'll be responsible for both. So he'll be the, the hybrid man. So imagine this. And we saw this a few times. Cristiano presses Tyrone Mings. Uh, Rashford, in turn, presses uh, Villa's left back, who in this case, in this match, was Digne. Um, and then uh, Garnacho would become responsible for both their right back and uh, their right center back. So what that means is he has to pressure the ball if the ball goes to the right center back, and he also has to make the goalkeeper feel that that pass is unproductive. But he also has to maintain enough space or enough proximity to the opposing right back such that he can close them down. Uh, so that's like the first piece of the press. And then obviously uh, our attacking midfielder in this match, it was, it was Donny, uh, picks up the opposing uh, pivot player in the, in, the, in the instance that it's a, a, a 4-3-3. So yeah, that's what we saw. I think the breakdown is something you wanted to dis- discuss though, no? Yeah, so in particular, uh, just to be clear here, this is more reflective of when we discussed with John what happened after Chelsea make the substitution. Um, they switched from the back five to the back four. That's the game where you saw both the shape against the back five and the four. Um, and I think a lot of the breakdowns, or and and maybe I'll also bring in Casey on this, is a lot of the breakdowns came from the fact that the front three were not intense enough, um, especially the man picking up two players at once. Um, and particularly, I would say when it was Rashford and not when it was Garnacho, were struggling to read the cues properly and then press with enough intensity to make that setup work. And what that meant was that Luca Dina in particular was getting a lot of time on the ball for Villa early in this match. And I think it's also combined with the lack of intensity from Ronaldo in making the first move to press the center back. Um, there were many times when Ronaldo was standing in no man's land, which allowed Martinez both to break lines uh, centrally as well as to play easy passes to his center backs that could open up the play. Um, The reason why I want to bring Casey in here is because there was a little bit of dispute, um, especially on Twitter, but a little bit during our rewatch, about um, the extent to which missing Bruno Fernandes uh, exacerbates these issues. So in this match, it was Donny van de Beek, and I thought positionally he played his role quite well in covering this press. And I think we all sort of agreed on that. But what Casey kind of argued um, is that Bruno, in his, perhaps individualistically, um, makes interventions with an attempt of covering for the mistakes that Ronaldo um, and to a lesser extent Rashford tend to make in the front three, and that that covering can be important in certain scenarios. Casey, do you want to talk about that a little bit? If you If you have changed your mind on this, you can also say that. Oh no, no, I still, I still agree. I f- at first, I kind of want to address the press because I feel like this is something we discussed a bit before as well. I feel like I've, I've explained multiple times on Twitter and to friends in pubs and stuff like that. Like, football is a game of space, and and that's kind of what this the, the game has become now. It's not really a lot of what you do. Like, what you do on the ball is very much influenced by what the opponent does off the ball. Um, and I feel like a lot of when I used to talk about what the problems were with the defense was the defense were given too much space to cover over a long space of time. So, oh, no, long space of time. So, like, they were given, like, half a pitch for four people to cover. 
So that's kind of been solved now because we've got two defensive midfielders who are two midfielders who kind of like understand that they don't need to shield the defense and make positional adjustments to make sure they don't get left in complete no man's land. And I think one of the problems we saw against Aston Villa was, and I think I discussed this when we were watching it, is that space has now moved up instead of disappearing. This this issue of we have too much space to cover at defence has now moved into we have too much space to cover in the midfield. And I think part of that is because of what we were discussing with the front-line press. The front-line press was completely ineffective. Um, we discussed how Ronaldo completely just picked a passing avenue, which was often the one that Donny van der... The, the, the pivot player actually dragged Donny van der Beek into. He always noticed, if you notice when Douglas Weiss was playing, and it happened a couple of times, I think, when we were watching it, Douglas Weiss noticed that Ronaldo is standing completely still and drags Donny van der Beek into the position behind Ronaldo because then that creates a massive passing avenue through the middle. And then you're now saying, here's two players, they have to cover a massive amount of space. And then that creates an issue where you've now got a massive gap where Aston Villa are allowed to operate and your press is completely broken within one or two passes. Now, I would kind of argue the, uh, the Bruno Fernandes point because I think the thing with Bruno Fernandes is that I think we discussed this as well, is like in long term, he's not really a system player and he may have to develop into a system player. I mean, he's a lot older, so that's kind of one of those things that he'll have to learn as he goes. But he won't learn it playing in this team because I feel like what Bruno Fernandes does is he looks ahead of him and he assesses the situation. And I've always said that what I would say is that he puts like a pin in Ronaldo's head and attaches a rope to it. And he's like, right, if he stays there, where is the best place in this sort of area for them to go around him? Because they know he won't move. They know that they, they can make an angle really good around him because he just, he creates like a really good lever point for them to work around. Like we're basically triggering our own press is <laughs> something to say. And then he makes a, a decision. Sometimes it's a completely terrible decision and sometimes it completely breaks the entire system. But a lot of the time, I feel like it kind of covers up a lot of those detriments. And I think that we were kind of missing that. And like I said, is someone who's a system player like Donny was completely exploited by Aston Villa because, as I said, Douglas Luiz just kept running into the space behind Ronaldo to drug Donny in. And then that just created one massive passing avenue. And then obviously... We've already discussed the space that Luca Dino was getting, the place that Matty Cash was getting, the space that um, even like Leon Bailey was getting up front. Like it, there was just so many gaps for players to play into. Yeah. So just to add on to what you're saying here, Casey, we saw a couple of different breakdowns. So that initial press that I was talking about earlier, the main breakdown we saw there was that one of the wingers was responsible for, for two men uh, the winger would close down the center back and leave the fullback unmarked. And that and that feeds into what you were saying about there being too much space in midfield. Um, because the fullback being unmarked ultimately speaks to an unwillingness, uh, either tactically um, on behalf of the manager or from an execution standpoint on behalf of the, of the players, specifically Dallow and Shaw and the other and the deeper midfielders that would be Erickson and Casemiro to come onto the fullback more aggressively. So, so that's one breakdown. And then you're talking about a different breakdown here, right? Which is Cristiano being sort of uh, inactive and how that allowed the, the center backs and Martinez a lot of time on the ball. And then uh, Douglas Weiss was doing this smart thing that you're mentioning, which is he was pulling into the, the cover shadow of Ronaldo, basically. And he was dragging Donny with him, which made two of our, our, our defensive players redundant 
in the first phase and created these passing lanes, right? Yeah, that, you've explained it a lot more succinctly than I was trying to. <laughs> of feeding off of what you were saying. And the only reason I restate the points is because we we're talking about two different things here. And I just want to make sure everybody listening can visualize this. It's two different problems, but they're very related. And, and they speak to exactly what you're just talking. So go ahead. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to derail you, but I just want to make sure we're, everybody has clarity who's listening. So I, what I was going to say about this game, and it kind of also leads back to Sociedad, was that we saw the sort of pressing that we were talking about, the winger on two centre-back, on the centre-back left-back, um, one on the right-back, one on the other centre-back, and that was kind of how we did the press. Now, if you notice against Sociedad, I think there is a, a definite tactical element to it, because... I kind of I remember we were watching it and it took me ages to like clock it and I was like, why is that right back never getting past to? Like he's in so much space and we were just looking at it, we were looking at it and we we're like, that. and then I literally just it, it zoomed in on behind the keeper and I went, he he can't pass, he can't pass with his le- left foot, and I feel like in that regard is that we we were trying to do smart things and then we kind of tried to do the same thing against Martinez in some ways where Garnacho was basically when we went use your energy get a bit about try and find the bit of pass because Garnacho was basically given a lot less to do against Aston Villa oh sorry a lot less to do against Sociedad than he was against Aston Villa because Aston Villa Martinez was a lot more I can pass to anyone here and I feel like we saw that with Garnacho because he kind of got a bit of a harsh awakening in terms of the pressing where we saw a couple of opportunities where he just completely switched off. And then he we, he switched off, but at least the one positive I would say is he realized after it happened, he went, oh, actually, I should have moved there. So to be clear here, there's a play that we were watching and Garnacho is clearly, um, he's marking, I think it's Ezri Kansa is his center back. And Kansa goes back to Martinez and he kind of disengages. And then the ball starts to go over him to cash and he immediately realizes what he's done and starts to react. I think that's a sign of maybe the fact that it's pretty early in Garnacho's senior career. He hasn't really been playing this way. And in the youth team, he probably hasn't been playing in pressing shapes this intense or against opposition this good. Um, and, and that's a sign of him sort of recognizing the cue that he was supposed to read and trying to correct it. So I, I, would, I would just add in here, Garnacho isn't the only one who's had trouble with this. Rashford and Sancho have also both made that exact same mistake and we've seen them do it. Yeah, uh, the other thing I would say is uh, that Casey kind of alluded to that I think is a good point is United have played this sort of shape in multiple matches now, and the way they've varied it is the opposition or how the opposition tend to break down or fail. So in the Sociedad game, both in the first and second one, I think, uh, the goalkeeper was really struggling to play balls out to the right-hand side. In the Chelsea game, Chelsea were only going to the right-hand side but Aspilicueta was not executing properly. Um, in this game, it seemed like Villa were able to both play through United into, into different spaces that were left by maybe slight mistakes in this press, and then use those players who were receiving the ball to exploit United in the early stages of this match. And that's why they were able to get up the pitch in transitions. I shouldn't say in transitions. They were able to get up the pitch quickly and threaten United against an unsettled defense because the press was broken. But I think that also, I think this attests to how kind of fundamentally flawed United's pressing is at the moment with how it's set up. Obviously we, we, we don't want to drum on about him constantly, but Ronaldo doesn't really offer much in it. But like you, you we've described a scenario, Aston Villa. Yeah, we, we made it easier for him, but the fact that Martinez could basically pick anyone on the pitch and be like, he's in a bit of space. He's the guy we passed to to break it. He's in a bit of space. He's the guy we passed it to break it, whether that be Douglas Louise, whether that be, uh, was it John McGinn? I think it was playing Cash, Dean, Dean. But 
the fact that we Sociedad were able to play through us and we knew where he was going to pass. Like, we knew that it's definitely not going to be the right back and that means that it's the three-on-three scenario. Right, Garnacho doesn't have to really do much to pressure him and they were still able to consistently get through us and break the press in early game and then especially when we kind of went to this weird formation that we'll probably discuss in a bit. Um, but kind of shows how fundamentally flawed this press can be and how if we come up against teams that just know how to work the ball around the back, it's going to cause us big problems, especially uh, after the World Cup because we've only got Fulham left now. So I agree with you. There were definitely really big breakdowns and it's a problem that there have been such big breakdowns, but I shy away from saying it's fundamentally flawed because I think there's, there was a huge intensity deficit, especially in that Aston Villa match. I felt like... To whatever extent that there are uh, like failure points in this, this the press that we're playing, absolutely true, totally agree. But I think we were talking about Cristiano, and you're right. I don't want to harp on him. He's not the only one. Rashford um, was another instance of a player who I felt in this Villa match, he just wasn't pressing as hard as he should have been. And you know what? For all the all, we can talk about decision making in the press, understanding your responsibilities, knowing where to be. But you have to cover ground. And I th- like while we were doing our rewatch, I think I was probably the one who was audibly doing it. But I think both of you guys also noticed there were moments where like, you just wanted to yell at the screen, like, run, like, go to the man, like, press. Because we were in a shape, and then we just weren't active. So like, I totally agree with you. There are failure points. But I still think there's a lot of improvement that can be made. And I think maybe this has to do with the, the different personnel combinations that we saw like Spurs and Chelsea we were good we were pretty good out of possession with Anthony and uh, Sancho and uh, Alonga taking on minutes um, and Rashford at center forward you get a different personnel combination that I think is less uh, active and uh, suited to a press and I think we see the problems that are inherent in the in this press become exacerbated right in my apology, I, I probably said fundamental when I didn't mean fundamental. That was probably like I'm I'm a pedant, and it makes like. But yeah, it is it is it is an intensity issue, as you said. Like, and as you, I, I, the gaps with the midfield, I kind of have to give a little bit of like leeway to Ericsson and Casemiro and that sort of thing. Of like, they were being said, "Oh, you have to cover these attacking midfielders," but then also there's a massive gap that you have to now jump into. And then that kind of plays around. But then at the same time, there were very there were instances when we were watching it, like we said, like, where are they? Like, I haven't seen them in this scenario at all. Like, I don't know where they are or where they're positioning. Casemiro was probably a lot better for it, but I think we were both kind of all like we we're all on the same page of Ericsson out of out out of possession being really exploited, especially by Aston Villa. Yeah. So Casey, what do you think? Do you think you go you put Fred in? Or do you do you roll with Ericsson? Because I think we all agree here, Ericsson has been a problem out of possession, at least in this match, this past Villa match. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a hard one because obviously, like, we kind of went into this game and you could see from Ten Hag's initial comments, he thought he was going to dominate this game. He thought that he'd have a lot of the ball and he'd be able to do a lot with it. So you would go, well, this is a game for Ericsson. But as soon as we got into that game scenario, it was instantly clear that Aston Villa are basically prepared for this. Like, even if you and I am really been there for like a week, they'd basically prepared to be like, look, they're going to, we just need to keep the ball off the front line. And as soon as we get past the front line, 
it should all fall into place. And then then you'd be like, well, maybe Fred is better in this scenario. But that's something that you make. That That's one of those ones where you're like, oh, well, Ten Hag needs to identify that and needs to make an earlier sub um, if, if he feels like he's got a problem. It also feels like a fixture occurrence thing based on having limited players in the, in the team, right? Like, I think ideally the player who plays that role is not Fred or Erickson. It's somewhere in between where you have a player who has the athleticism to cover large distances um, quickly. And then you also have a player who has the technical ability to progress the ball through the thirds. Who could that be? Well, hold on. I want to add in one more thing. Um, to your point, Casey, I do agree. I think he anticipated that we were going to have a lot of possession in this match. He said that in, in the press conference, like you mentioned. I do think there's a fundamental issue with the way everybody thinks about that, though. Which is, if you go into a match and you expect to have a lot of possession, and so you're like, oh, let me play my weaker out-of-possession players who have more technical ability or have more threat against settled defenses, you are necessarily going to have less of the ball as a result, right? Like, you take out your good out-of-possession players, you're going to have less control out of possession, which means you're going to have less possession. Which I know you know, but it's something that bothers me about... um, sort of that thinking, uh, like, oh, we're going to have a lot of the ball. Um, let's just plug in Erickson. Like, I think, it, I think it makes sense, like, at a surface level. But then, I don't know, I, I just would, I would hope, and this, this sounds very arrogant, but I would hope there would be a little bit more nuance in the thinking from the manager, right? Like, I'm sure he recognizes the different qualities here. And he's, I'm sure he's recognizing the trend, right? Like, we, we, we're losing control in these matches specifically. I think when you have Cristiano up front and debatably Erickson in midfield, we can get, we can talk about Lindelof later. It's a whole other issue, but these are, these are all examples of players who I think are objectively to whatever extent that they offer things. They offer more in possession against where you're in matches where you're going to have a lot of possession than in matches where you're not. I don't know. I'm, I think we're all starting to see a trend where like we dominate matches when we play well out of possession. And we play better out of possession with better out of possession players. But anyway, that was yeah, I think the one the one point of nuance that we probably could add is that the fact that Bruno Fernandez was suspended. Like that's probably where that probably where the lie of like or the line lies of Ericsson might be needed just because it becomes a Paul Pogba like situation of where does the creativity come from in this midfield if we're playing Donny Van Der Beek, a guy who likes to play between the spaces and off the ball. Casemiro who has a bit of a long ball on him but isn't like that tight kind of passer I want to move on from pressing because once again we've been devils in the pressing details for about 25 minutes here but my last thing that I will say here is that I think ultimately in terms of the Van de Beek argument where you have you have a player who is playing the role that is tactically prescribed fine but is not necessarily looking for the situational mistakes that other players are making and making his own decisions to compensate for that uh, versus a Bruno Fernandes. But I think my principal point is more something along the lines of quality aside, because we know Bruno is a great player and we hope that Donnie will show more in a United shirt than he has to date. But in terms of the short-term versus long-term argument, I think Casey made a great point that a lot of what Donny van de Beek does, and he was speaking out of possession, but I think in possession this applies too, is 
related to the fact that it is suited for a team that United are likely to be further down the line in Ten Hag's rebuild, if we ever get there. And because he's not the player who fills the gap that Bruno Fernandes, who covers a lot of the deficiencies that currently exist in the team now, but may not be as suited to the long-term aspects of the rebuild, at least for now, it's basically just an interesting debate as to, you know, what do we do next with Donny van de Beek? Because a lot of people were talking about this performance, and honestly, I was watching it back and thinking, I don't think either of these performances are bad from Donny van de Beek. I thought he made interesting runs. I thought he was picking up the ball in good positions in the final third. I thought people were ignoring his runs. But he is obviously not Bruno, where he's going to pick up the ball 100 times a game, try 50 things, and succeed at three. And those three lead to uh, United winning the game. So, yeah, what did you guys think of Van de Beek's performance, and how do we proceed going forward? Um, Do we just keep giving him minutes and hope that eventually the team clicks enough to take advantage and... Also, hopefully he gets fitter and his technical execution improves. You you could say the argument of playing Van der Beek through it and hoping it works out is probably the way that you'd, you'd think it would work and like you'd hope it would work. But then you've also got to think, you've got to win games. Because the thing is, it's like we, we talk about what Ted Hag's team looks two years down the line. If he doesn't win games, he doesn't get in the Champions League, like all that sort of stuff. That's very much on those shaky grounds of just being like, well, he might not be there to finalise it. Uh, and as as with a couple of players, I kind of think that Donny van der Beek is in that weird... Is one of those players where it's like, right player, completely wrong time. Like, his career just does not sync up with where things need to be. Um, I think, obviously, he was bought by Solskjaer. We've all seen the short list of creators that were apparently in the mix for that. But yeah, it, it was clear that he didn't particularly know what he wanted from that sort of player. He just wanted a player with, like, he does things in the number 10 role. Um, but And then we bought him, and then for two seasons, we don't really know what we're doing. So that, then his sharpness is gone. So then the, the, the thing is, is that that was very apparent in that game. Like when he got the ball occasionally, he was like holding it too long, not really knowing where to like play it and stuff like that. And fair enough, I, I can accept that. Like that's fair enough. Um, but then I, I was saying, like, you've got to have the players around him, you've got to have the system right. And I think that's where he thrives. But it's where that when that system's available because I don't think that system's going to happen this season. Um, at the end of the day, I think for for want not for want of a better like situation, we're probably stuck with Ronaldo for his, the end of the season. I feel like he doesn't really gel well with Ronaldo as uh, in 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 terms of like that's not even me saying Ronaldo's like bad. That's not a point of that. I'm just saying like if you look at the two things they do, they both want. We discussed it before. They both want to make secondary runs. And that just kind of like they run into each other, and Ronaldo was running into other people as well. Like I feel the Donny Van der Beek, if he was twenty four years old, twenty five years old, walking into a United team a season, season and a half down the line, you'd be like that player just slots in, and that player does the role that you want to do. Donny Van der Beek now probably doesn't do that. Donny Van der Beek two seasons ago definitely didn't do that. The issue you have is that you you take the risk of, and I think it again goes back to the compromise versus drill down and and double down um and i think you're right that you have to double down to the point of survival where you're not getting the results that you need to keep the job and continue to rebuild Uh, but i think ultimately the point that we're trying to make here is that it's not that donny van de beek is a bad player and for the record he has played so few minutes that i think the sort of arguments against him are lacking in sample size 
It's more that the current circumstances of the team and the role of the number 10 don't exactly suit what he does, but he could be important in the future. And so coming up with solutions that fit him into this team properly can be difficult. And at this stage of his career, we could run the risk of wasting some of his best years if uh, if we don't figure out a way to get him into the side properly. I think we already have wasted his best years. He's not he's uh, not even in the provisional squad for the Dutch national team for this World Cup. He hasn't played for the Dutch national team since March of last year, 2021. I think this move has completely derailed his career. That aside, yeah, so I'll start from the beginning. I didn't think very highly of him when he was playing in the Netherlands in comparison to other players in that team. For like probably the same reasons that people don't like him now, which is that he wasn't one of the spectacular on-the-ball players, Hakim Ziyech or uh, Dusan Tadic or Frankie, for that matter. Um, and I think we've we've hit this so many times, maybe not on this podcast, but I think everybody knows this stuff. If if you're listening to this podcast, which is Donnie's really good off the ball, uh, he's a he's a goal threat. He is tidy. He does what he's asked. Um, and that all probably just sounds stale at this point. But what I will say is, I think even in a, a team that's imperfect and not necessarily a well-oiled machine, you need smart players. And Donnie repeatedly makes all of the runs that nobody else in this team makes. Even in that Villa match, where I think a lot of people feel that he didn't play well, he was doing stuff that nobody else in the team knows how to do. Like, for all of his potential shortcomings, and honestly, I would say he doesn't really have major technical shortcomings so much as he's clearly not been match fit. And so, he's yeah, he's dwelling on the ball. I don't disagree. The player that he was when he arrived, he is still that player. Um, and I don't think... Like Aaron said, he's hardly played. And these two matches don't change the fact that he's hardly played. So I think you still keep playing him. Because I didn't see anything in those matches that made me think he's fundamentally not the same player anymore. And I think if you give him a thousand minutes, 1500 minutes over the course of the rest of the season, which is like isn't even that much, but it's way more than he's had in previous years, I think you're going to see a productive squad player, even if we're not playing perfectly. And, and I base that not even on what he was at Ajax. I base that on what he did in those in that Real Sociedad and Aston Villa match. Like I still see the player. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that he's a productive squad player. But enough about Donny. Let's talk a little bit more about probably the biggest elephant in the room in this game, which we haven't spoken about in half an hour, which is United conceding three goals. To what extent were United unlucky here? Because I think Villa, they only had 0.6 XG, and I don't think they had big chances that didn't result in shots for the most part like they didn't really create that much and they made a lot from what they did uh, in terms of finishing and two in spite of that United made mistakes for each of these goals so maybe let's talk a little bit about uh case I'll come to you first what types of mistakes United made here that led to that led to conceding first goal comes from uh ball goes into Watkins Watkins uh pulls Lindelof almost like to our forward line super 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 deep into midfield Lindelof basically puts in no physical challenge. Watkins is able to play the ball laterally. Uh, the ball gets to Bailey in the space that uh, Lindelof vacates. He drives into that space. Lisandro can't get across because it's a ton of space and Bailey's really fast. Arguably a goalkeeping error. The finish is a little awkward, but still, he shot it right at him. So I think you could say De Gea should probably do better there. But yeah, I think for me, the primary breakdown there is it's, it's just what Lindelof is, right? 
And I think everyone felt that Lindelof got bullied in this match. The issue is, one, it's questionable whether Lindelof should follow Watkins, who is a very good player holding up the ball, out that far from his own defensive line. It's probably about 40 yards away from goal by the time Watkins releases the ball. And then number two, if he does follow Watkins that far, he cannot, under any circumstances, let Watkins get the ball out. If that means fouling him and taking the yellow card, he has to do that. He has to commit the foul or win the ball. If you, Once you follow the player that far out that you've broken the entire team's defensive structure, you're coming away with either the ball or a reset. He definitely should not have followed Watkins as deep as he should, but that's not because there's a point that he should have dropped off of him. There's a point that he just should have put his body into him. Um, and whether that's winning the ball or throwing him off balance or following the, the hell out of him and getting a yellow card, that's up to the circumstances. But Veron and Maguire both run through the player there. And then this happens again for the third goal, I believe, right? Lindelof tracks, I think it's Watkins again, for so long and doesn't put in a challenge. And that allows the ball to get past him and into an, into an open Jacob Ramsey at the edge of the box. Yeah, yeah, so it's a slightly different scenario because Lindelof is sort of uh, running with him down the wing as opposed to following him into the box. Yeah, it's a transition. But yeah, yeah this, is why I, this is why I say use the word softy. Um, he just has to go, like, put his body into him instead of delaying, delaying, delaying because he has help. For that third goal, Casemiro's right next to him. The reason you delay in those scenarios is when you don't have support and you don't want to overcommit and leave the player a free-running goal. That wouldn't have happened. Lindelof was in the perfect situation to make a challenge on the ball. And it, it's just, it's a decision-making error that comes from his natural tendencies as a player that ultimately I think are flawed. I think that's pretty good. Um, for the free kick, I think Shaw had to commit the foul. Is that right? I think so. Like, it, it's one of those weird ones where it's like, it maybe he could have been in a little bit of a better position, but it was kind of like just, it was a weird one. It, it was one of those ones where it's just like, a, a dangerous player gets on the ball and you're like, well, what do I do here now? So like, well, I've got to bring him down. I can't just let him run at the defense, run into the space, get a ball across. Like maybe, maybe it's, it's a situation where he just tries to shield him out or do something like that. But like, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock him for committing a foul there. How about the wall? Wall looked real far out. Wall looked about 15 yards away from the ball, if you ask me. Well, they put they put they put a second wall in front of it, so you know the wall's not in the right position. So I don't get so why. So Ten Hag complained about this, right? Yeah. He said in the post match that he thought the wall was set really far by the ref. Yeah, I think that it was exactly where the ref set it, and then they put a wall in front of it, and they went, "Oh yeah, this is fine." And I'm like, "What? What? What? What's going on?" As soon as the wall, the thing is, the other thing with that is right. As soon as that wall sets in front of me, I'm just walking up to it. And if the ref goes, "You're not in the right place," I'm like, "Well, where are they standing?" Like, there is a like, it is what the only thing I'd say there is it's common sense. If you're going to complain that the wall's not in the right place, yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, like, it's common sense. If you're going to complain the wall's in the wrong place, and then they go and set a wall in front of you and do not get penalized for it. Just go walk up to him. Like, yeah. just go and stand there. Like, because you're in the wall then. And then that's the thing. That, I, it, that's, uh, but like, that's the only complaint I can have about it. If, if the ref has made a point of making them stand there, then that's weird. But like... Yeah, I don't know how these rules are set. But when I first imagined the goal before our rewatch, I thought Dinia was quite far out. Because I was like, how did the ball end up so low in the goal? But it's actually because the wall was really far. Dinia was at the edge of the box. And he's able to, because the wall is so far, it's landing in the middle of the goal, which is probably a sign that, like, 
and United aren't putting short players in the, it's not like it's like Lissandro and like I don't know Garnacho yeah. in the wall like United have some tall players so this really I don't know it doesn't make sense to me and I, I'll be honest I don't know the rules but it just seems strange I think the real defensive problems that we had in this match we actually talked about when we talked about the press as opposed to the goals um the I would say the goals after the press breaks down are um, down to personnel things. And personnel things, you can only talk about so much. This is something we discussed earlier in, in the season when United were breaking down in the press a lot. Giving defenders 30 situations to deal with in a game versus three situations is going to lead to more chances for the opposition, no matter how good your defenders are. The best way to not concede chances is to not concede possession in good areas of the pitch, right? And ultimately, when United's press breaks down, what it means is more final third entries, uh, better positions for Aston Villa, and therefore more opportunities for United's defense to make mistakes. So while it's perhaps not optimal that players like Lindelof are playing over Varane, or even maybe Maguire, what we're really seeing here is, other than fundamentally changing Lindelof as a player, the best way to fix these issues is to be more effective in how the team as a whole is coordinated out of possession. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like yeah, that's that's the general point, and in the long term, that's the way that you do it. I think this game, it, I do want to rag on Lindelof a bit because, <laughs> as I said, I, as I said to Case, it's like eat a pacifist. Like he, he makes a pacifist wants to punch him. He just invites it. Like that's the thing. Like he's it's just so he dangles his chin in front of them like constantly. And then uh, it, it, for for the podcast, I am mimicking this. Um, <laughs> people listening at home, but like and and you just like even like the most like 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 peaceful person would just be like, well, he's he's asking for it because I feel like the thing is is we talk about the first goal. He did it on multiple occasions. It wasn't just that one opportunity where he just went running after people. And you're like, at this point, like, what? How is your defensive midfielder meant to cover for you if you're not there? And that he's meant he's now the centre back in that scenario. First goal, I think was it was Jacob Ramsey played into yeah. We talk about that goal, but that third goal, stupid. It was what we expect from Lindelof, but to like a comical level. Like he was the he was following him for about maybe thirty yards, just keeping on going, keeping him going, keeping him going, and then he got to the box and you're like, just take the ball off him, just, just just take it off him, and then just played it into some space. And we we've talked about a bit the breakdown as well outside the box and why Jacob runs as a free runner. But the problem is, is that ball should never have done that. Is like even if he misses the tackle, he pushes Watkins on the outside, and Watkins doesn't have that chance to make. I I, I kind of I kind of see like in the long term and in the bigger picture stuff. What we're saying is the press is the big thing. The press is what will make us good on the long term. I think more prevalently, though, Lindelof is not going to be playing is kind of the hope here, right? It's going to be Varane or it's going to be Maguire. And once that happens, uh, uh, presuming that those players play better than Lindelof, the main issue is going to be the fact that United's press was broken multiple times throughout this game. And also that Aston Villa were quite lucky. Like all of these chances went in. They didn't really create a crazy amount of chances outside this, um, and they were all really well taken goals. So I think that's also part of it. I'd like to I'd like to do a visualization because we've done this a couple of times for the first goal. I'd like to get you into an opportunity that Leon Bailey, Leon Bailey gets through. He's on his uh, 
left foot. He's off balance. And De Gea decides to set himself <laughs> to... We can't talk about De Gea again. I'm sorry, Casey. No, no, I'm but, 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 but for the goal. He decides to set himself <laughs> no, 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 no. for the near post. To... Let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Let him go. I just want to point out, like, it, it, just, just, just think about this. He's off balance. He's trying to hit it. How is he going to hit the near post? Like, how? How is he going to do... He's just... I don't know. Like... This is the thing that I've... I'll lead into a point that isn't just about De Gea, because like, I feel like I'm not going to rag on him just too much. Like, Is that we don't control chaos well. And I, I think I explained this, like I said this all the time while I was watching it. It's like, we get into situations where we just put ourselves in a lot of trouble because we don't we don't have like the, 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 the structure or the sort of regiment to deal with these chaotic chances. And then when chaos happens... We always just seem to be on the wrong end of it. Like as you said, Aston Villa got lucky. Swear enough. But like, in, if you look at some of the top teams, it's like if the other team gets lucky, fair enough. Like they'll be able to sort themselves out and dig themselves out of it. And they also minimise the amount of chances where chaos happens. I think that's a Johan Cruyff thing. I'm not sure. And um, it's like the sort of variables. It's about minimising all that sort of stuff. I think it's a Pep thing. I think Pep said something about that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's like. You only have it, it, that's the pet philosophy of keeping the ball is if you have the ball, there's less chances of anything going wrong because you know you're in control of the ball. But the thing is, is like as I said, the, the scenarios in both matches where if one player is just slightly tighter and in slightly better position, or one player doesn't do one weird run out there, or like another player decides to see Donny doing a pass or something, we don't end up in a scenario where we're just scrambling for something and then have hoping that it goes our way. And I think a lot of the Aston Villa goals were just like, we put ourselves in the most chaotic situations and we make the most stupid decisions in them at times. Uh, On that note, I think we're going to take it to a break because we still want to talk about why United failed to create more than about half a goal's worth of chances in 90 minutes against Aston Villa. Before we talk about the Europa League and what comes next for that, because it's going to be quite a journey. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back. We spoke pretty much the entire first half for over 40 minutes there about United out of possession, and we didn't really get to talk about the main sort of feature of this match, I think, that United went 2-0 down after just over 10 minutes and couldn't really create anything for the rest of the 90. The only goal was an own goal that was one of the most fluky own goals I've ever seen. And I think games like this will happen where United get punished really easily for defensive mistakes and all of them just happen to go in. What shouldn't happen is not being able to create enough to even score one goal um, in 90 minutes against a mid-table Premier League side. I think there's a lot to talk about here in terms of what went wrong uh, for United in possession. So let's get into it. Let's start with maybe the crossing game. I thought United were... Case and I have talked a lot about suboptimal shooting and how United often waste opportunities to create better chances by taking mediocre or bad shots uh, from far from the goal. And I think even worse than that is bad crossing, where United have an opportunity to make a pass, but they choose a worse pass and lose the ball. This game was a horrible, horrible example of bad 
crossing decisions that led to just loads of clearances and loads of poor, poor sequences of attacking play and wasteful sequences of attacking play. Okay, so we we, we kind of discussed this, but I think the issue is is that for one for one of a better way of putting it is the ball seems to be that we're trying to play with Ronaldo as our focal point again. And we're trying to get the ball to Ronaldo in most situations. Now, this creates a scenario where people keep crossing from deep. Now, Shaw's not too bad at this. I think he's kind of in the right area to do these sort of early crosses. But Dallow on the other side was what we saw in the game. There was multiple instances where he was just kind of just just too far back, maybe like a meter, two meters. And he was trying to play it across to Ronaldo. Now, something I kind of just was noticing on my watch back, and I didn't really mention it, but then I'm now trying to think of it, is that whenever these balls get played in, they always get headed away by the person stood in front of Ronaldo, and Ronaldo never seems to jump for them. So it seems that basically they've been told to put it on Ronaldo's head as he's standing. Like, not there's not... I mean, he might jump for them if he got over to that area, but there wasn't really many opportunities where he jumped. He kind of just... The ball just went in and it just got cleared away. And I'm just kind of seeing these crosses, and I'm like... Why? Why are we doing this? Like, as as we kind of discussed, like there's a we we've trying to transition into a team where we play around, we look for spaces. We've got Donny van der Beek on the fit pitch, who's looking to try and find spaces on the pitch, and there's a lot of opportunities there where Donny van der Beek make a really good run, and we were just just like thrown in. He made the he made the non obvious run while we were looking for the obvious pass. Is probably the way of putting it. And yeah, it just. It, <laughs> The thing is, is, we're looking for these runs by Ronaldo where I don't see what he's trying to do. And I, 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 and I kind of said this in the actual thing, and I don't hope this gets clips up, but like, <laughs> he don't, he, everyone keeps going on about how he's this 800 plus goal goal scorer and how, how can we criticize him for how he plays when he's scored all these goals in his career. And my counterpoint to that and what I said before was the way he's playing now, he wouldn't have even got 100 is the way that I'd say that. And part of that's age. Part of that is just the fact that he's 37 years old and he's a, and he's a winger that's been converted into a striker and he's trying to play like the way that he did when he was a winger. Okay, ultimately, Ronaldo has two goals in about close to 1290s this season, but I don't want to make it about Ronaldo. So I'm going to present to you an argument that maybe takes this a little bit further downstream, right? Ronaldo is suited to heading in crosses at this stage of his career. Heading is advantageous to him because he doesn't have to work out. He doesn't have to sort out his feet to get a shot off. He doesn't have to make runs that uh, his body kind of fails him while making. There are a variety of reasons why crossing at Ronaldo, if you can facilitate good crossing options, is perhaps a good way to use Ronaldo. My follow-up point here is, why not facilitate better crossing situations than the ones United are crossing from? So, for example, De Bruyne, Trent Alexander-Arnold, generational crossers. Part of why they get so many assists is not just because they're great crossers. It's also because their teams facilitate situations for them where they have time, they have space, they're in areas where they can find the striker, they have secondary runners. So it's not just crossing at one man, it's crossing at three with a central target. Um, you see De Bruyne swinging balls at the back post with three guys running in front of the face of the goal or in front of the last line. Why aren't United doing more things like that if they want to play a crossing game? I have an answer to this, but I want to hear what you guys say first. So let me phrase what well, my point was differently. Like The way that we're playing in crosses now to Ronaldo 
is not doing what you're saying to do. Like he, we are, if you're playing it across the front line, you're still relying on his pace. You're still relying on his burst. You're yeah. still relying on and, all that. And for the record, I agree with everything you said. I'm just maybe furthering yeah. the discussion to if we're playing specifically to cross to Ronaldo, why not facilitate better crossing? So this, so this is where I was going to say that there were multiple opportunities in the game. Um, and we'll talk about this. It's like on the left-hand side, Garnacho would receive the ball. He would drive with the ball. And while he was driving with the ball, Luke Shaw would make a run on the outside. And this would mean that there would be a pass out to the outside, which would allow Luke Shaw to cross it in, which would allow for a stationary jumping Ronaldo. And it also would mean that he would probably be unlikely to be offside, which was one of the main issues with when we were trying to play it forward in front of the line. And this also meant the same with Dallow on the other side. When Donny van der Beek was making these direct runs diagonally out to the edge of the box, if he chipped it over to or tried to play it round two, Donny van der Beek, Donny van der Beek then is in a better position to cross it back across. And this isn't just with Ronaldo. Like, I'd like to point this out. We were doing this whenever anyone was in the box. Like, obviously, like, there was a kind of, a, like, there were kind of situations where you create a better chance for Ronaldo, but there was kind of situations where if you just pass it to Shaw, he can play it straight to Donny van der Beek. There was a specific chance in the game where Garnacho drives in um, the, I think it's like the full back of the winger who is marking him, kind of pivots. If he plays it to Shaw right then, Donny van der Beek has made a run has found space in the centre of the box. There's no variation. Like you said, all these generational crosses, it's the variation that makes them great because you don't, you know, a hundred times, like if, if, a, if a cross is the same cross a hundred times out of a hundred, you know how to mark it because you know exactly what he's going to do. The thing is, is like, and maybe like if it's a, the perfect ball, which you're not going to get a hundred times out of a hundred, then maybe you'll get through regardless of what you do. I'm going to add a few things here. I'll start from the beginning. Casey was talking about Cristiano, and you said you don't want to make this about Cristiano. Yeah, we could cross from better positions, and we're definitely crossing from ridiculously stupid positions. But I would say that is because Cristiano is on the pitch. And I think you can see this. Dallo, Shaw, Casemiro. Bruno wasn't on the pitch in this match, but he does it as well. Erickson does it. All of these players, Anthony does it when he's playing, pick their head up and play balls whenever possible to Cristiano. I, I generally don't buy into narratives like this, but I think it's like really visible now. Uh, he's played enough matches where we can say this is happening. The, the, the passing tendencies are more direct, more deep crossing focused team-wide when Cristiano's on the pitch. And in this match... That became exaggerated to the point of ridiculousness. Like, like some of these crosses. So were, I agree. Yeah. So okay. Hold on. My I, why I ask these questions is not because I believe it's not Cristiano. I'm asking you to lead you to the point where you explain why these balls are going into Cristiano really quickly instead of being worked right. better. Cristiano was always a, a threat from crosses from from his latter days at United through his entire career at Real Madrid, through his entire career at Juventus, including last season at United. He was a, a threat from crosses. It was also not even the primary way he scored goals throughout his career. Uh, he was a threat with the ball on the floor, on the grass. He was a really, really good dribbler. He was an elite athlete. Uh, he could beat players. He was a great secondary runner, like we've mentioned. He wasn't a focal point, but he was incredibly deadly in the box. Um, and he was a he was an effective he was he could effectively get shots off on the ground. He can't do that anymore, and we've seen that. That's the reason why you see him take make a lot of back passes. He doesn't take on a man. He often closes down his own angle. These are things we've talked about previously on the podcast. And he's adapted his game now 
to cut out those the types of runs that put him in those positions. And I think the team is still feeding him despite the variety of his runs having having decreased. Um, and so I think that is the root cause. So that's why I frame it the way I, I, I frame it. I think the problem or, or the cause here is Cristiano, and, and not just Cristiano as a, as a monolith, but the fact that Cristiano's changed his game to account for his limitations, and uh, the rest of the team has had to change around that. And, and ultimately, I, I know you agree with this, Aaron. I think there's no way this United team creates enough chances feeding Ronaldo. The last thing I want to do kind of here is is tie it a little bit back because Casey made sort of that point about the counter argument being he scored so many goals in his career. Why is he not getting the service he needs now to do that? So number one is that United are going direct to him because of a idea of creating goals with Cristiano on the pitch that goes back to an idea that Cristiano can do exceptional things with the ball in the in the box that you can get the ball to him quickly and in volume and he will turn something into a goal. Number 2 is that he's declined as a player, so he's fundamentally changed, so that is no longer the case. And he also has limited the types of the different types of goals that he scores. So, you know, you can be a slight problem in the press if you're scoring 1.3 goals every game. But when you're scoring the same or in fact at this point less than everyone else in the team is scoring, you're actually limiting the ability for this team to be able to create goals. The the other thing is, because he's declined so much as a player, his execution in possession, outside the realm of making runs that create goal-scoring chances, has declined so much that he is unable to facilitate better chances being created as the striker, not only in terms of his movement, but in terms of possession sequences. There were so many in this game where he just messed up in possession and United lost the ball in a promising or decent position, especially in transition. This is something Case talked about last week. Ronaldo just gives the ball away when United are in a good attacking situation in transition. Or he has the opportunity to continue to play forward, but he cannot technically execute that anymore. So he passes back, and that allows the defense to reset. It's not all about Ronaldo, and I don't think United are the perfect striker to break down blocks, but I think... What we're saying is that a big component of how United are playing in these matches with Ronaldo has to do specifically with the fact that Ronaldo is playing. And a big reason why they can't create for Ronaldo is because of Ronaldo. It's not because the team is playing a certain way that they can get around with Ronaldo on the side. And I think we can say that at this point with quite a bit of certainty. The player that Ronaldo needs to be for this team to function is obviously Ronaldo of the past. The player that can run onto a ball, find the space, has the ability to break away from a man, the ability to get above a man and run ahead of them when they're crossing from deep. The player that can get it on his feet and take on a man and make a shot. Like This is what Ronaldo wants to be. This is what Ronaldo still thinks is in his head. And I kind of was trying to say that the player that... And obviously this is like he's a fraction of the quality and this sort of thing of what Ronaldo was at his very peak. But this is what kind of what Rashford offers when he plays. He has that little bit of movement. He has that bit of burst that he's able to get into the spaces. He, the goal against West Ham, I think, is kind of the the epitome of the sort of goal that Ronaldo would score when he was in his sort of box threat peak. In the sort of like he kind of beats his defender, jumps a bit higher, and then heads it in with power 
Like the the goalkeeper, even the goalkeeper gets a hand to that. The goalkeeper is not stopping that. That is the sort of thing. And I think this is the thing. Like we're at the point now where the decline is so obvious that even the fraction of that, like say the fraction that we're saying to say Rashford is right now, is better than what Ronaldo is right now because it's just that he does the movements and he can do the stuff that you need to do from your striker. And I, and I think he can... And, and and as I said, he's only just added head into his game. Like, he, the heading part of Rashford was never really his strong point. And and he, as we as we just said, like, the heading point of Ronaldo was never really his focal point. It, it was a strong point, but it was never really the thing that you relied on him to do. So... Yeah, on that note, I think... I just want to make it clear. We don't want to talk about Ronaldo. Like, I'm looking at Casey's face, and I'm looking at Casey's face, and it's like... When United play a game against a block for 80 minutes where they just funnel the ball at Ronaldo and it doesn't lead to any goals, that's not something we want to talk about. But when you look at the main themes of the game, that is literally what played out and what happened. People, and like, like, I, uh, people I just want to put this out. People say that I like talking about Ronaldo. It would please me nothing better to not have to talk about Ronaldo. But the problem is, is this, this is the situation that gets created. Like with everything And so happened. it was 90 minutes against... Um, against Aston Villa. And this is a good transition point because it was also largely the story against Real Sociedad. The Real Sociedad match was not just... It was what you're talking about. Uh, it was a lot of early crossing, poor decision-making, I funneling the ball to Ronaldo. But I think the real issue in that second half was how incapable we were of establishing possession and then progressing the ball. And I really think that's the reason Maguire came on as a striker is that we were just giving the ball up in midfield over and over and over again like we didn't even I don't think we had a shot on target in the second half I don't think we had any shots on the ground the ball wasn't even getting into the final third so I think that's why you saw that Maguire solution um but that just speaks to I think another issue that Ronaldo causes which is he's not an outlet yeah I mean it's it's just really hard especially when a team is playing very aggressively which Sociedad did for periods in that match, to get out of a press um, if you uh, if you don't have a, a, an outlet at striker. Yeah, I, I, the thing with the Sociedad game is, I think the Sociedad game showed there is still a there is still a quality player somewhere in Ronaldo. Like the thing is, is like I, like in in everything we say, he still is a player that has done so much in his career, and I think the pass for Garnacho's goal kind of showed some of that I mean the the problem is and this is where the fun this is where we all want to just kind of be the very clear point of this is the thing is there's just there's just so many scenarios that we keep coming into and the Sociedad was this where there is no consistency and the the problem is is that there are certain players who are consistently making errors whenever they appear and that that is completely derailing it and that's the bad side of the consistency. Like, you do not want that in your team. You do not want where, where it's like, this is where I can see it breaking down. And I think this, this, like I said, we can say Ronaldo, but like we've talked about Rashford. Rashford pressing is like one of those issues where you're like, that is a consistently an issue. And that needs to be solved in some way or over. Like, you could say like, when players on the pitch are trying to cross it to Ronaldo, that's consistently an issue. And you need to go, right, look, stop doing that. Or vary it. Or just add something else to your game. And like, yeah. United are having a lot of problems. The problems are coming from execution of the press. Decisions in possession specifically being too direct, i.e. 
deep crossing, and personnel issues, i.e. player tendencies, player performance, uh, things that are inextricably linked to the players on the pitch as opposed to ways they can improve, right? And I would say the reason that we're talking about Ronaldo so much is he has a role to play in all three of those things. Awesome. Let's end on a brighter note or perhaps a more depressing note, depending on how you look at it. Casey, you love Barcelona. You tweet about them all summer. I know you're a huge fan. What are United's chances of winning this tie and getting into the round of 16 of the Europa League? Or, or if you're not a Europa League guy, what are the chances of uh, United's players getting a nice Thursday holiday at the beach? There's, I, I, I'd like for you to name the beaches that are close to Manchester because if they're going down to Blackpool, I'd be testing them for some, some diseases, not just injuries after those sort of things. I can say that because I've been to Blackpool. I live near it. <laughs> so, um, but in the sort of sense of the, the Barcelona game, I'm going to be at it. I, I have a season ticket, so I will be at the game. So I'm going to enjoy that night. But like, hopefully. Um, but I just think they're a bit further along. And I feel like they're top show. of La Liga. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, 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 I think what I mean is I can see their problems and you could see their problems in individual matches and you saw that in in the Champions League they got unlucky and they didn't really take the chances which is really hard to do when you have Lewandowski up front like it's it's insane that, that I'm making that statement but yeah they're top of La Liga and I say they're a bit further ahead but like they still have the games where they completely break down but they have some quality players who fit the roles that they want to play. They have a style of play which works for them. And if we end up in a scenario where, like Aston Villa or like Sociedad, where we make it easy for them, we're just going to get walked over. On the one hand, I feel like, I mean, objectively, this Barcelona team are, I think, are really good. Uh, regardless of what happened in the Champions League, I think this Barcelona, I think they're really good. And I don't think we're really good. So. They should beat us, right? On the other hand, the way they got done in the Champions League, specifically against Inter, was they just got spread wide in defensive transition, partially because they had uh, players injured. Araujo was injured. Uh, I think Koundé was injured. So they were playing Pique and uh, Garcia, which obviously is not ideal. And Pique is retired, so we won't have that privilege. But I think we can spread them wide and hit them in transition. So... I don't think all hope is lost, but it's definitely suboptimal. Like, if you look at the the spread of teams we could have drawn, it's like, come on, man. Like, why, why that one? Because uh, I think the rest of them we are better than. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Um, I was just saying this this morning about Bayern going six out of six in the Champions League group stages and then getting PSG, right? With these cups, you never know what's going to happen. And one, you're never more than one step away from being in danger of elimination in them. And that's just what United have to deal with in Europe. Um, but I'm honestly more optimistic about playing Barcelona than you guys. I think it's maybe because of the types of personnel that might be available for them for that game. But if they're playing a back three of, or as in back three as in the two center backs and the defensive midfielder of something along the lines of Eric Garcia and, and Sergio Busquets, I think United can get at that team in transition. And while I think they're a better side than United and also went and signed a bunch of my favorite players over the summer, I, I still think that in the right, if the, if the right sequence of events transpire, United have a decent chance 
of beating them in a one-off game. And I would love to see it. So Yeah, I think it's going to be, if, if there is any chance, it's going to be very much a Arsenal-Liverpool-style scenario where it's definitely Ten Hag not trying to play the football that he actually wants to play and just tries to just go, right, look. Oh, no. I think we'll set up similar to similar to the Arsenal game. You press to force mistakes, but you don't necessarily dominate long periods of possession. And then when you do get the ball, you look to attack quickly and get Rashford in behind them. And I honestly think that could work. On that note, I think we should maybe look to wrap up. Uh, Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll definitely plug your details in the episode description, but please let everyone know where they can find you. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, at casey underscore evans underscore you'll probably see my name attached to this podcast by aaron because he's such a friendly guy who knows how to use twitter and yeah you can find in that lovely twitter bio you can find my newsletter played on paper which you can also search for it's on substack and yeah i talk about football and as aaron said at the start i talk a lot about the world cup i've wrote like 20 something thousand words on the world cup so far and the favorites and like their history and stuff like that i've got another one in brewing um so that'll be out and there'll be another one there'll be two more out before the world cup starts so we'll see how that goes thanks for listening everyone hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details you can follow us at devils itd pod on twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms our awesome theme music was made by jacob connor you can find at jacob j connor on twitter have a great week and we'll see you next time